Well, good morning. It's great to see you in worship this morning, bright and early. Got an easy passage today. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's an easy passage. No, it's not easy. It's a hard passage. It's a hard passage with hard words from Jesus. And and the idea that we're going to focus on today is this big idea at the top of your uh, bulletin there on the sermon outline. The big idea is simply this. Jesus' radical sacrifice for the sake of the gospel requires radical sacrifice from us. I'll be preaching today from uh, a book called Radical. Um, It uh, is a book by a man named David Platt, who's a preacher in uh, Birmingham, Alabama. And uh, I I would commend this book to you. We're we're doing this series for these three weeks, starting today, um, as just sort of an overview of the concepts in this book. The book is called Radical, and uh, the subtitle is Taking Back Your Faith from the American Dream. And, and, And the crazy thing about this word radical is that we're reading words that we've heard many times that Jesus spoke 2,000 years ago, and yet when we read them today, they feel and seem radical. So I'll be unpacking this idea today that, that Jesus' own example of sacrifice is what leads us into following Him in the same manner. So let's, as we go into the Scriptures here, let's pray for the Holy Spirit to guide us. Lord, we are gathered as your people, as the body of Christ. We bear your name. We bear your image. And Lord, we want to be people who continue to demonstrate that we are your followers, that you are the great rabbi and that we sit at your feet learning from you, taking our cues from the work of your spirit in our hearts and in our lives so that we would be people who are changed from inside out, that we would be people who pursue character qualities that come from your character and nature, that we would pursue holiness and goodness because of our sacrificial love for you that's demonstrated in love for others. Father, teach us through the series that uh, you would guide us, that you would form us, that you would continue to shape us as the people of God here at First Christian Church, shape us into what you've called us to be. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, at the beginning of the day, I want to focus on one main question today. Uh, If you're taking notes, this would be a good one to write down. I want you to consider this question. The question is simply this. Are you willing to come to Jesus on His terms? Are you willing to come to Jesus on His terms? It's the kind of question that we have a knee-jerk response to. We all who have grown up in church our whole lives and seen the Christian life lived out before us, it's easy for us to say, well, of course, I did a long time ago. I came to Jesus on His terms many, many years ago. But before you answer this question... Are you willing to come to Jesus on His terms? I want you to think about how it is that we talk about coming to Christ. I want you to think for a second about how we talk about coming to Christ in our modern churches. We talk about coming to Christ in ways that are not found, frankly, oftentimes, in Scripture. Becoming a Christian in America 
has become a certain brand of Christianity. This is the danger, a brand of Christianity that consists in making claims and going through motions that are often foreign to the New Testament concept of the sacrifice that is involved in following Christ. We talk about four spiritual laws. We talk about following the Romans' road. We talk about signing a card, raising your hand, praying a prayer. And we talk about coming to Jesus as a decision you make in your head in those kinds of terms. But friends, those are foreign to the New Testament concept of what it looks like and what it means to follow Jesus. And these are concepts that result from human-centered ideas that try to take a number of very difficult commands of Jesus and boil them down to something. And yet, what we'll see here today is that Jesus' own terms for what it looks like to follow Him are far more radical than the way we talk about it. What we do, what we do instead, is we come to passages like this and we try to soften the blow We try to ease the words of Jesus. And so we create sort of this system of Christianity. A system of Christianity that consists in in check-off boxes that measure external likeness to our human expectations as a shortcut for the internal work of God. That's the problem. We've given into a brand of Christianity that consists in moralistic checkoff boxes that easily makes us look a certain kind of way that can easily shortcut and even for some entirely replace the internal work of God through His Spirit to change us. When we do this, we are in danger of creating a cookie-cutter Christianity where we follow people's expectations of what it looks like and sounds and acts like to follow Christ more than His sacrificial terms here. Are you willing to come to Jesus on His terms? Let's look at what the terms are. Let's look at what the terms are. We just read that passage and we'll read it again in just a second. But I want you to notice here that Jesus, and this is an important point, Jesus was speaking to people who were not yet disciples. Jesus is speaking to people who are not yet believers. It says in the very first verse in our passage, in verse 25, it says, great crowds accompanied Him. It was a crowd of people who were interested in following Jesus because He did lots of cool things. He healed people. He made the blind people see. He made the deaf people hear. This, in fact, is an evangelistic text in a sense. Jesus is setting forth the terms of what it looks like to follow Him to people who were flirting with Him, flirting with following Him, but who did not yet do so in the terms that Jesus demanded. Some today, you might hear these words in Luke 14 and say, well, we aren't yet mature enough for this. (laughs) This is a mature, deep faith kind of passage, but Jesus isn't speaking to a mature crowd. In this passage, He's speaking to people who are considering following Him. He was speaking to people who were interested. Who were in the mix as part of the crowd because He did lots of amazing things. Go on, Jesus. Do another miracle. Do something that really wows us. That's what the crowd's who were following Him, were saying. So Jesus, He sees this. 
he sees the people who are around him and he says, let me tell you what it really looks like. Let me set the terms clearly. So he sets down the terms of following him. And he says three different times in this passage, he says a key phrase in this passage three times, you cannot be my disciple. If this does not happen, then you cannot be my disciple. He's very clear about this. And we have to be careful not to soften his words. So I invite you today to come to him on his terms. Let's read this passage again. I want to refresh our memories about the stark, uh, the the seriousness of Jesus' words here. Uh, Chapter 14, verses 25 through 35 again. Now great crowds, verse 25, great crowds accompanied him. It didn't say they followed him. It didn't say they worshipped him. It didn't say they were his disciples. They were just with him in the same place. Great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Miss anybody, Jesus? Yes, and even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. That's the first time we see that phrase. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross, whoever does not die to himself, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me, second time, cannot be my disciple. Verse 28, for which of you, he talks about counting the cost, what does it look like to be a disciple? For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. He uses a second example of going to war. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, third time he says it, cannot be my disciple. He finishes by saying, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. There are three terms set forth very clearly here. The first is this. Jesus, if we are to follow Him, He requires superior love. Jesus requires superior love from us. It says, verse 26, If anyone comes to Me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be My disciple. We need to be careful... Because what we do in this kind of situation is try to soften Jesus' words to justify the way that we live. Oh, Jesus didn't really mean that. What he meant was this over here. There are two passages in Matthew that shed light on what Jesus is saying here in Luke 14. The first is this, Matthew 22, 35 to 38. If you're taking notes, Matthew 22... 35 to 38. I'm going to read a little bit about this 
passage here. It's a discussion between Jesus and an expert teacher in the law. Jesus approaches this teacher's question, and this is what's going on. Verse 35 in chapter 22. One of them, that's one of the, uh, the Pharisees, one of the teachers of the law, a lawyer asked him a question to test him, to test Jesus. Verse 35. So 36, Jesus says this, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment? I'm sorry, the question comes to Jesus. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus says, verse 37, And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with soul and with all your mind. That's the first and greatest commandment. He's repeating something that all good Jews knew. It's straight out of the Old Testament, repeated time and again, the greatest and the first commandment is to love the Lord your God. Everything else, everything else comes after that. Everything else is a different priority. A lower priority than that first and greatest commandment. There is no stratification of priorities. It's very clear that love in all of its forms comes first for love from God. Now that's one of the passages that helps us. Matthew 10 is the other passage. Matthew 10, 37. It's this passage that's uh, very similar to this Luke passage. And it tells us uh, a little bit more about this idea of of what it means to hate your father and your mother and your sister and your brother. And and, and what is Jesus talking about here? So verse 37 in Matthew 10. He says this. This is Jesus speaking. Whoever loves father or mother more than me. Remember we just talked about that previous passage where Love for God is first. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He uses this strong comparison to say that our love for Him is meant to be far greater than anyone else, even our own family. Even our own family. So when Jesus uses the word hate here in Luke 14, he's using a tool that rabbis used a lot. He meant it as a comparison. He meant to say that love for him is so supreme that every other kind of love is so far less that it looks in comparison like hate. So in comparison to Christ, he is saying the word hate fits to describe the people we love. Does that mean we hate the people? No. But the comparison shows that in contrast, in comparison to Christ, we hate the people that we love. Now what this does is it changes our perspective. It changes our perspective about love. It changes our perspective because when love for God captivates our hearts first and foremost then the kind of love that we are showing to our family and everyone else comes from God and is not a begrudging obedience or a manufactured pretend emotion or fake. In the world of the Holy Spirit changing us, fake it till you make it doesn't seem to work. It's not that love for our family is mutually exclusive 
for love for God. It's that love for family and friends and everybody in our horizontal relationships here on earth flows from first a love from God vertically. We know so little of this kind of love, of the supreme love for God. Instead of supreme love for Christ as the source of our love for others and the motivation for living the Christian life, we pray Him, in fact, in, in, in contrast to that, we pay God begrudging obedience. Don't we? We've all lived that. We've all experienced that. Instead of supreme love for Christ as the source for our love for others, we pay Him begrudging obedience. We say, I know I need to be in church. I know I need to pray. I know I need to study the Bible. I know I need to take my kids to church. Christianity, friends, that is from the heart of God, does not consist of begrudging obedience to Christ. This is different than duty. This is begrudging obedience. This would be like if I were to greet my wife at the door and I give her a kiss and I embrace her and she says, where did that come from? And I say, well, I, I, I see it here on page 23 of the marriage manual that I'm supposed to love you. So I'm going to kiss you and hug you. <laughs> Most uh, wives would be shoving it back down the husband's throats. Take your manual home. I want love that looks and feels and responds like the real thing. That's what we want in our relationships, isn't it? And that's no different than the kind of love that God wants from us. He wants the real thing. So the question simply is this. Do you love Christ with all of your heart and all of your soul and with all of your mind? This is a different question than if you are here, if you bring your kids to church, if you're teaching Sunday school. That's a different question. I'm asking if you love Christ in the way that He describes the problem is we idolize everything else in, a, in an equal kind of manner that we do our begrudging obedience and love for God. We idolize our kids. We idolize our spouses, our relationships, our families, our friends, our stuff, our cars, our sports, our movies, our drugs, our porn. Everything in this world for us is a temptation for us to love more than God. And Jesus ends up getting the leftovers in our affections. That's the problem. John Bunyan was a famous preacher who illustrates the practical implications of this kind of love. He was threatened to stop preaching. He was going to be jailed. And when he was finally imprisoned, he wrote these words. Listen to what he said. He said, Departing from my family has often been to me in this place as the pulling of flesh from my bones. But, but I must venture all with God. I am like a man pulling down his house upon his wife and his children, and yet I must do it because, he says, Jesus requires superior love. For the sake of the call of the Gospel, does Jesus have superior love, the supreme love in your life? If not, Jesus says, you cannot be My disciple. 
The second term in this agreement is that Jesus requires superior loyalty. Jesus requires superior loyalty. Nothing else gets our hearts as the cause and purpose and goal and aim of our lives. Nothing. Supreme, superior loyalty. He talks about carrying a cross in our passage. Think about how we use that term. We talk about carrying a cross. It's a misunderstood phrase. We talk about, I'm going through this struggle because it's just the cross that I bear. That's not really what Jesus is talking about here in this passage. Jesus has just said that anyone who does not carry his cross... And of course, anytime someone is carrying their cross, it's to their death. It's because they're being sentenced to death. So the only time anyone carries a cross is when they are going to die. So it would be as if he was saying in our context today, if you do not pick up your electric chair, you cannot be my disciple. Truth is, if you're not carrying a cross, you are not dead to yourself and alive to Christ. We are meant to be dead people walking. Dead to ourselves, alive to Christ. As if you have no more pride, it's gone. No more honor, plans, or goals. In every sense of those words as the world defines them. That's not the goal. You are dead to those things. Your only fate as a follower of Christ is following Him to His death and your death. So Jesus, in the middle of this crowd, who's excited about the cool things He's doing, says, any takers on following Me to My death? Are you ready to follow Me and sacrifice in that way? It's no surprise that when Jesus talks a lot of times, the crowds begin to dwindle over time. We become people who are dead to our self-esteem thinking, our self-centered planning for our own lives, dead to our self-comforting kind of lifestyle, dead to all of that. But alive to Christ-centered living, and in Christ identity. And this changes not only our perspective as we talked about before, but it changes our priorities. You and I do not determine where we live. Christ determines where we live. You do not determine the kind of house you live in, or the car you drive, or the clothes you wear, or the things you buy, or the plans you make. And neither does the American dream or the people who live next door to you or your mom or your dad or your sons or your daughters. Dead to those things, alive to Christ's priorities. This is a huge claim of authority over every aspect of our lives. And he uses two illustrations that demonstrate the change in our priorities. He talks about the fact that we are workers constructing a building. He says that we are to estimate the cost. You better realize the cost. There's a famous preacher who 
says that a lot of modern Christians haven't truly counted the cost. And he says that being involved in the Christian faith to be respectable but not uncomfortable is the name of the game in modern Christianity. As if to say, I didn't, I didn't really think you meant everything, Jesus. We are workers constructing a building, and finally we are also warriors fighting a battle. It changes who we are and what our plans are and where we live and what we wear and what we drive, how we think, how we educate ourselves. This is not about a holy war or a jihad, and this is not about a war on terror. This is not a war that is fought with guns and bombs. This is a war that is fought with the gospel. It's a war that's fought with prayer. And it's a war that is meant to be fought with sacrificial love from us. A spiritual battle for holiness in our lives. A spiritual battle for the lives of people all over the globe, many of whom we don't and may never know. And the stakes in this war are higher than any other war that has ever been fought on the planet. The problem is that modern Christian life is not viewed as a wartime faith. It is viewed and it is lived by us as a peacetime faith. Wartime faith asks questions like, how can I sacrifice for the sake of the gospel in the world? Peacetime faith asks questions like, how can I have more fun? And how can I be more comfortable? The difference between a wartime faith and a peacetime faith is like the famous uh, cruise ship, the Queen Mary. The Queen Mary was huge, bigger than the Titanic, 3,000 people, all meant to be wealthy, well-to-do people. It was built for luxury. It could fit up to 3,000 wealthy patrons when it was built. But what's interesting is that for about six years, they took that same ship, the Queen Mary, and they modified it to help with transporting troops during the war. With some modifications to that ship, it could transport 15,000 soldiers for the sake of the mission instead of accommodating wealthy Patrons. When you visit it today, you can see bunks eight high that are designed for war. And then in other parts of the ship, places where there are huge suites designed for luxury. What would happen if we looked square in the face of five billion people in the world today who die without Christ and we said, we are not going to use this ship to indulge our pleasures? and to sit by the pool and wait for our d'oeuvres. Do you want to be a part of a battle? Or would you much rather sit back and twiddle your thumbs, wasting what God has given us on ourselves? So has your life, has your faith been slowly turned into a peacetime faith? And you don't hear the sirens of the call of the gospel anymore? Is your life under attack from the enemy, in contrast, because you're in the trenches? 
Or does he not particularly care about attacking you because you're hunky-dory and your life is no threat in this battle? Friends, Jesus is calling us to be workers and warriors who will look in the face of suffering and evil and pain and knowingly sacrifice all that we have for the sake of the good news because we are loyal, supremely loyal to his cause. The third set of terms is that Jesus requires total loss, total sacrifice. This doesn't just mean some things. At the core of it, we like to think that we have this total loss, total sacrifice kind of Christianity. But the reality is that Christ has full reign over the things in my life that I am comfortable giving to him. That's the truth of it. Christ has full reign of the things that we are comfortable giving to him. That's not what he's asking about. He's asking for total loss and sacrifice. Our houses, our cars, our clothes, all of these things we are given as tools and resources in the battle. Do we say to Jesus Christ at the beginning of our days, Lord, everything I have for you today, it's not mine. Do we say, my 401k, Lord, do what you will. The first Christians knew very clearly the stakes in the battle. They understood that it meant total loss. In Hebrews 10, verse 32, it paints a picture of what it looked like in their lives. Listen to what it looked like in the lives of the first followers of Christ. Persecution was a reality for them. The evil one attacked them because they were in the battle. Sometimes they were publicly exposed to insult and to execution. And it says this in Hebrews 10, verse 32. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes partners with those so treated. Verse 34, I love this. You had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Anybody ready to joyfully accept the plundering of their property? Takers? Jesus steps into this crowd who's excited about what he's doing. They're flirting with him. And he says, are you ready? To accept total loss for the sake of what I want to do in the world. Jesus did not die on his cross so that we could be fat and happy, fiddling while Rome burns. He died so that we could be thoroughly satisfied in him alone. That superior love and loyalty and loss means we gain the reward, the priceless reward of Christ. It is the supremacy, in fact, of Christ that is the example for us. 
that allows us to live lives like this. It is the supremacy of Christ's example that shows that he is supremely loving. And that's what makes him worthy of all of our sacrifice. It is the supremacy of his loyalty to the Father's will on our behalf that demonstrates that he will continue to be faithful in his promise to us of a greater reward. And it is the supremacy of Christ's loss of his own life that will allow us to know him personally. And that is our reward. He's saying all other is infinitely less than the reward gained in knowing me, he's saying. How is it? How is it that these words seem radical? When it's Christ's initial invitation to follow him. Let's pray.